0: This is week two of The Fine Line. Uh, Raise your hand if you were not here last week to hear the sermon. Okay, Uh, please go online because these tie in. And uh, we talked about Job and we talked about the sneakiness of self-righteousness. I wanted for the sake of time to split this into two weeks. And so today we're going to talk part two, the fine line between righteousness and pride. And we're going to talk about the symptoms of self-righteousness. Like any disease, or any sickness, or anything that's going on, before you find out what it is, usually there are signs or symptoms that give you clues as to what it could be, what it might be, and then how to treat it. And so, uh, we're not gonna go through all those signs, but there are some significant things, and I think it's important for us to really hone in on this because pride is one of those things that you and I will never fully get rid of for the rest of our life. But we can, it's like peeling an onion, you know, it starts off big and layer by layer by layer by layer by layer. The goal is, is that from glory to glory, that pride gets smaller so that humility and the love of Christ can get bigger. How many want that in your life? That's a plan for peace, right? That's a plan for living the abundant life that Jesus wants for us, Um, but self-righteousness is a tricky one because it can really affect Christians. There's a secular pride and then there's a religious pride and that self-righteousness, although a secular atheist can have it, I think that it's one of the main tools that the enemy Satan uses against Christians because we do or should get victory in our life We should overcome more and more things the longer we serve Christ and become like him. And it can happen that when we get victory, I mentioned last week, that we can start to think that it's by our own doing and our own work and our own effort that somehow we earned right standing with God because we're so much better than we used to be. And we gotta be careful because it's one of the things that Jesus comes down on so hard And we read last week that God allows even a shaking in our life to get us to confess and repent of it. And so I'm gonna dive into this idea. I do wanna say before we get started that the Bible says we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The reason I'm saying that is this is the bilingual side of it. So our side as humans on the earth, the, the human earth side of this, is that we do need to exert effort, and we do need to work to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil. We do need to make it a point that obedience matters. It's not that our obedience or our work, it doesn't earn us union with God. That happened when Jesus died on the cross and we just simply believed in him, we turned away from our old life, we put our faith in Christ, and he, through his righteousness, And his work joined us to God. So why do we need to do anything if he already took care of it? I said this a couple weeks ago. He took care of the union and he provided an opportunity for communion with him or intimate relationship. And so the reason that we obey and we fast and we repent and we resist temptation. Jesus even said, none of you have resisted sin to the point of bloodshed. Meaning that like, he sweat great drops of blood because of the stress of obeying God to go to the cross. None of us have got to that point. But he still says, listen, when you do this, it opens up the opportunity for deeper communion with God. I say that because my sermon today, if you don't understand that, it might sound like I'm giving some type of license to sin and that is not at all what this is about. But I'm gonna put the spotlight on the self-righteous, judgmental attitude that some Christians have when they get a little bit of victory that somehow we think because I'm doing better than somebody else that somehow I've earned closeness with God that somebody else can't have. But it's all through Jesus. So that said, I feel like when it comes to self-righteousness, it's the most subtle, sneaky assassin. To me, it reminds me of the mosquito. And what I mean by that is like, if you look at history, and I I snoped this to see if it was true, and most sources say that it is true, that mosquitoes have literally killed more human beings than anything else in history. Through malaria, through yellow fever, it's something like since the beginning of time, they figure that there's been like 109 billion people that have lived. There's six billion, seven billion on the planet now, but those who have lived and died, and out of that, something like 50% have been killed by some sort of mosquito-borne illness. And isn't it crazy that you never see them coming. They flutter silently, they land on your skin, they even do the courtesy of giving you a little topical numbing cream, and, and then, they, then they draw your blood. Like dogs, when they attack, they give themselves up like a mile away. They just start barking like, here I come, right? Sharks attack people, but when they attack you, yeah, it's kind of sneaky, but it's not like mom's shark is out there with little Jawsy Jr., you know, her little toddler. Okay, I'm going to teach you how to hunt, honey bunny. So when you go after the swimmer, we want to put on some oceanic numbing cream on his calf before you take it, right? It's, but mosquitoes, I'm like, I'm sorry, I got this thing with mosquitoes because they'll be in my bathroom sometimes in summer. And they're so slow, but try to slap one against a wall. They just, somehow they just dodge it. And I feel like self-righteousness, it somehow sneaks up on us and we don't know it. And when we try to kill it, it just seems to dodge us. And it infects more people than almost anything else. And most people don't know that they have it. But then we get the itch to make ourselves look good around a group of people. And it's like almost impossible not to scratch, right? It's one of those things that, unfortunately, it can have really harmful effects because what starts as this passionate devotion for Christ can end up turning into a very self-centered gospel um, to where we're making everything about us. And we miss out on living in that loving grace that God provides for us. And so let's dive into what the symptoms are here. Number one, symptom of self-righteousness is judging others by comparing my goodness to theirs. Here's Luke 18, it says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So Pharisees were separatists, meaning that when this invading army came in and they occupied and the Jewish people were given the right to practice their religion and instead of being exiled or murdered and slaughtered like other major nations did to the Jewish people or weaker nations, Rome, what they did instead of slaughtering them, they let them flourish and they encouraged flourishing and then they would just tax them. Right? So like, why would we kill you? You're a revenue source. And so they infected the culture that the Jews were trying to keep. And so the Pharisees are like, we're going to be so separate because we can't have this stuff coming in. We're going to do all these extra things. And so they took scripture and started adding man-made traditions to become even more holy than scripture required. And so it became a pride thing. The tax collectors were traitors, Jews who worked for the Roman government. And they would go be the kind of the financial henchmen for Rome and they would tax their own people and then they'd get to step on it, put a little extra money in their own pocket. And so they were despised by their own people. This was like, you know, mafia. And you're a Jew, you know better. Why are you doing this? Why would you even side with Rome? And so Pharisee, religious... Expert and tax collector go down and they're praying. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, it's interesting because I promise you the behavior of the Pharisee was much better. He lived a cleaner life for sure. This tax collector was a thief, he was a manipulator, he was dishonest, but because of the posture of his heart, he came to this place that he realized that he is nothing without God, even to the fact that he couldn't even lift his head to heaven because he realized he was so unworthy of forgiveness and he begged for mercy. And God said, even though you live almost a blameless life behaviorally, You're going to go home unjustified. And this uh, notorious sinner, because he repented, he's going away with grace and mercy because he realizes he's not worthy on his own and only I can give that uh, righteousness to you. And this this is the heart of the gospel. This is the message that Jesus is trying to get us to understand and walk in. Some of you say, well, I would never say that. I'm not that prideful. Like I would never say like, oh, I thank God I'm not like any, but would you really not say that? Would you really not think that? Think about, I heard this story, it was about a Sunday school teacher. And so she was telling her students this same parable. And so she starts off and she says, there was a tax collector and a Pharisee and this Pharisee stood up and he prayed, oh, I thank God I'm not like this tax collector. And she says to the kids, aren't you, so glad you're not like that Pharisee, right? And in doing it, she's doing the same thing, right? Kids are like, yeah, I'm so glad I'm not like that Pharisee. Now, how many in here, raise your hand. Thank God that you're not like that teacher, right? You see how it goes? Like, it's so easy to be like, you know, I'm not judging, but man, I'm so glad I'm not as bad as they are. And nobody's wishing upon themselves that they would be a worse sinner. But at the same time, we have this weird deal where we categorize sins like somebody else's failure was just my slip-up, right? Somebody else's absolute like train wreck of a life was just a learning season for me, right? So we could play this game where we compare other people um, at a much stricter judgment and we take it easier on ourselves. Or if we are living better than them, then somehow we almost find innocence. In our sin, if somebody else's sin is bigger and greater, like God's gonna say, oh, you know what? Yeah, they are much worse than you. So therefore, your bad works are really nothing to me. And so it's just so subtle. Now watch this. So the itch of self-righteousness is super hard to resist. This comparison game, right? And so one of the things that's easy to do when we're not going to the throne of God continually and asking God to baptize our minds with that continual revelation of our need of grace. The same grace that saved us is the same grace that has to sustain us. It reminded me, I was thinking in eighth grade, played football and we would do these things called meat grinders. Anybody ever do that? You get in one line, the guys get in another line and literally the coaches just have you run at each other and smash one another, right? It, it sounds like something Kim Jong-un does, like, in North Korea. And, and my coaches, like, that's all we ever did the whole practice. I don't think we won a game. Um, because all we knew we had to do was hit hard. We didn't learn skills. But I think they got pleasure out of it. But I remember, like, we'd stand in a line, and everybody was, like, looking at who was in line, and we'd be counting. And so we were looking for Tiny Tim, right? We want to go up against the smallest dude. And so if he's three back like you know and I'm number 4 I'm trying to get three and we're fighting over those positions cuz we want to be able to look really good to the coach by being able to dominate and smash the smallest guy. And and it's fine until you got in line with this kid named Zach. He was a freak of nature. Every school, every class, come on raise your hand if you had a kid that was like, "Are you 30? Like, <laughs> do you have a family on the low-low somewhere?" This is eighth grade, come on. Maybe you were that freak of nature. But I kid you not, I feel like his parents must have like put like Chernobyl water in his sippy cup or they pumped him with steroids from three years old on. He was like, imagine Shrek, if Shrek did CrossFit every day for two years, right? And so we feared, man, like I had a lot of anxiety and I was a pretty tough kid. Yeah, you go against Tiny Tim and you look like Bobby Wagner. You look amazing. But the second round, when you go against Zach, he makes you look like Bob Ross, okay? <laughs> like, it, it, was, it was not cool, right? But I thought, man, that's exactly what we do. You know, we look so good when we compare ourselves and, and, and we want to point out flaws. This is where gossip and slander come in. This is where backbiting and nitpicking and judging you know part of the reason we do it is because we want to feel better about ourselves and so if you ever noticed, like when there's a lull in a conversation like you're talking about the weather you're talking about whatever and i don't know what else to think of uh and then all of a sudden somebody just starts like bringing some random person up and talking about how bad they are why because if i tear someone else down i feel more righteous about myself I feel better about my own good works. This is what Jesus is pointing out. And this is what the Pharisees were doing and never realized that the Lord, he looks at the heart and one of the most repulsive things to growing in the Christian life is pride and self-righteousness. Now, Matthew 5, 27 and 28 says this. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. So he's talking to these guys and he's trying to show them, look, you don't get it. I know you live by the law and you judge your standing with God by the law and how well you keep it because righteousness just means right standing with God. Like I'm good with him. Unrighteousness means bad standing with God. Am I right? Am I acceptable? Am I in his presence? Am I allowed to come in? And so he's like, okay, let me go through this. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And so I imagine these dudes are like high-fiving like, hey, We haven't done that, haven't slept with any women. You know, we got our accountability groups and they're feeling good about themselves. But then look what he says. Jesus says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh Uh-oh. He literally said, hey, you think that it's just the action, but I've always wanted your heart. And when there's a list of laws, number one, it's given because I'm showing you, none of you can keep it. But beyond that, if you're able to check all the boxes and I did all the behavior and the heart is still wicked, you're just as guilty as the person who committed the actual physical sin. Now, the consequences may not be as drastic because there are consequences when we live in continual sin. But what he's saying is, look, none of you are righteous, no, not one. Because if you've sinned in even the littlest portion of breaking the law, you're literally guilty of breaking the entire law. If you can live by the law 100%, then fine, you're right with God. But if you break one jot, one tittle of this entire law, it's as though you broke the whole thing. Why does that matter? Well, let me read this. First John 3, 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, there are people that have committed murder that have been saved and they do have eternal life in them. But he's saying the same thing like, hey, uh, you think that you're so holy because you've never gone out and taken taken a life. But if you burn with hatred in your heart, God sees that as a sin of murder. Now, if I was to say, don't raise your hand here, uh, but if I was to say, how many actual murderers do we have in this room? Uh, The number would probably be small. But if I judged all of us according to 1 John 3.15, how many have hatred in your heart towards somebody? Like bitter unforgiveness. If I asked you to stand up, all the murderers stand up, this place would look like Sam Quentin State Penitentiary, right? I promise you, this is the way that God searches the heart. Are you with me today? I, I know I'm meddling. I know I'm messing around and getting in our business today, but... But again, we have to, to call this out. Jesus exposes our self-righteous comparisons. And to me, I, and I'll move on to the next point, but I was thinking it's like if our righteousness was measured by you know, physical height and size. You know, let's say the animal kingdom, and you have insects and animals that are judging themselves and their righteousness. The flea, he feels pretty righteous standing next to an amoeba, Right? He's like, man, I'm much bigger than this little microscopic pipsqueak. He feels good about himself until an ant walks up, right? And then the ant just, he's so much bigger. He's so much more righteous. But standing next to him is this giraffe that's just shaking his head like, I cannot believe you guys are arguing over how good you are when I'm standing right next to you. And Jesus is the giraffe in the picture of our life. And Mother Teresa and Billy Graham would only amount to an ant. You wouldn't even see them in a a photo. They're so small compared to that righteousness. So who are we to judge other people and have somebody in the bullseye of our bitterness or our intolerance or our hatred or, 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 or our disgust because they happen to be committing a sin that might be quote unquote worse on paper when in the eyes of God, please hear me, in the eyes of God, whatever that sin is in them, you are just as guilty in light of eternity. So we have guilty people judging guilty people and none of us measure up, even though some of us might be an ant compared to a flea. Come on, how many believe that God is giving us the truth here? Now, it's not, again, this isn't a license to sin. So it's not like, oh yeah, there has to be judgment. And the judgment that we have within the church is this. If somebody's going off the rails and they're acting crazy and they're heading in the wrong direction, hey, we call them out in love. Galatians 6, if a a brother or sister is overtaken in trespass, then you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then be careful yourself when you're going out to try and reach them because you might get turned too. You might end up getting pulled into the same thing because the enemy will work through a deceived brother or sister. But do you understand that, like, yes, there's discipline in church? This is why every single Christian, and this is the argument for a local church, every single Christian should be in a flock where there is shepherding, where there is community, where there's mutual accountability. Here's why, I cannot go down the street to any other church, walk in and start disciplining and changing things and telling them how to do what they need to do and messing with their doctrine. I haven't been anointed with that office. God called me and called other pastors and leaders and elders to this specific body as overseers. And as an overseer, my job is to lead, is to feed and is to protect and to empower the church and equip the church for the work of the ministry. And, and part of that involves this. Hey man, I see that you're struggling. Let's pray through this thing. Okay, man, we're, we're on round 10 and it doesn't seem like you're making any progress and, and you're, kinda, you're spreading a lot of gossip and you're poisoning the, the flock and we've done everything we can. You know what, if you continue this, we gotta protect the sheep And so we got to figure out something else here. If this isn't your place, so there has to be discipline. But when it comes to putting myself in some view or image of right standing with God by pointing out other people's faults, God says, don't do it. Because that type of judging, what it does is an insult to the cross. Because here's here's how it insults Jesus. Jesus. It's kind of like, remember the underdogs when you used to push people on the swings? Hey, give me an underdog. So you'd run under and give them that first swing. And then they would kick your legs, you know, keep it going. And, and all of a sudden, I don't need the underdog guy anymore because I got this. And, but in grace, Jesus, sometimes we, we know he gave us the underdog and he brought us into the kingdom. But then we come to this place where I got mo- momentum. I'm doing this. Like Jesus, thank you for the underdog, but I got it from here. And what that does is it says that the cross, it wasn't really all that it was made out to be in Scripture. Meaning that like, Jesus, I know that you helped me, but you didn't need to go that far. Your blood, your blood helped, but it's also my good works that did like half the work. And so you're basically saying, Jesus, you really didn't even need to come because I can be made right with God on my own works. And in that, it's an insult to grace because the only way you and I are saved is by what he did to make us right because he was perfect and we are not. Amen? So a few more thoughts here. Point number two is one of the symptoms of self-righteousness is taking credit and glory for God's gracious work. And again, I'd never do that. I give God the glory for everything. But it shows up very subtly. Listen to this scripture. It says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So uh, we're, we're saved by grace. Works matter. We'll be rewarded by our works. But none of us can boast because it's by his grace that saved us and sustains us. And so when we start to prosper... And, and God starts to use us and we have influence and our marriage is healthy and God opens doors for us and all of a sudden we're getting promoted and there's accolades coming our way. It's so important that we, we remember the only reason God did that is so that we could be a brighter witness because the more he blesses us, listen, the reason that a lot of us can't go to the next level is because we're not faithful and we're not glorifying him at the level we're at. That's our finances. That's our influence. That's our relationships. God's like, you keep wanting more, but I'm asking you right now, will you, will you return unto me what I've given you? Will you work the talent I've given you at this level? And when you get accolades, success, and breakthrough, will you give me the glory for it? so that you don't draw people to your own goodness, brilliance, and gifting, but that I am the one who's lifted up so that people will be saved. The reason I bless you ultimately is to bring other people to Christ, the saving knowledge of Jesus. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The minute I read that, you know what jumped into my brain? You remember that group, Millie Vanilli? Raise your hand if you don't know Milli Vanilli. Oh my goodness. Y'all were either homeschooled or you're young. Nothing against homeschool. I got a kid that does school at home. So Milli Vanilli, this German R&B pop band, late 80s, early 90s. Blame it on the rain. Blame it on the rain. Yeah, yeah. We're not gonna sing it. I'm not, we're not gonna sing it. Then they had that song. What was the one that skipped? Girl you, know Girl, you know it's true. Okay. so let me tell you how so hey, do we got we got a few dancers? Uh, it was I'm not gonna oh, no, I'm not gonna do it. Uh, so anyways, so they they were blowing up Millie vanilli good looking guys. I mean, not now, you look back and like. The 80s were God's joke on fashion, right? I'm gonna blind them to what they're wearing right now. So they're blowing up, man, selling out concerts, making millions, and come to find out like they weren't the actual singer. It was some dude who was writing the songs, recording the songs, singing the songs, and on stage they would just lip sync it because the original singer was not very attractive and he wouldn't have made it as eye candy in a stadium full of people. And so they use these guys, so I'm going to take my words, my producing ability and intelligence, and I'm going to let you lip sync, and you'll be famous, you'll make a lot of money, I'm going to get a massive kickback too, but so this works, I'm going to use you guys to do my stuff. And I'm telling you right now, so... they're at a concert and girl you know it's true and they're singing and then the record skips in front of a live audience it's like girl you know it's girl you know it's girl you know it's girl you know and and all of a sudden people were like what like what's going on so they're exposed and their career tanks and i think like i think one of them went into major like depression and but we, listen, you and I are one record skip away from being exposed as mere lip singers from heaven. We're one record skip away from it, because here's the deal: like, oh yeah, okay, you can preach good, okay, good. Oh, God's blessed you. Yeah, yeah, you're given. You're, you're, man, you're you're making a difference with your money, and you should. You're serving. Man, you're the superstar volunteer. Wow, you are so kind. You're you're so generous. You have such wisdom. You counsel people. Man, you have a gift. You lay hands on the sick and they get healed. But at the end of the day, it's his words coming through our lips. It's his performance coming through us. It's his anointing. He wrote the song. He gave us the voice by the Spirit. And if that record, dude, if he took his presence and he let us perform by ourselves, our career is over. It is, it is Millie Vanilli. It's over. I hope they never hear this podcast. Um, I love you, Millie Vanilli. Come to our church. I'll, I'll let you have a redo, all right? Um, but check it out. So, gratitude and thankfulness guards us against trying to take credit as a lip syn- singer. Gratitude for everything you have. You know the reason God says he has such a big thing on give? Um, For God so loved the world that he gave. Love shows itself by giving. Giving your your words, giving your love, your time, your emotions, your finances. Because giving crucifies that need for the glory and stuff. Because it says, it's not mine, I'm going to give it away. It came to me, but it's going to move through me. God doesn't do it to take, trust me. God can in a second provide any, any need you have, emotionally, relationally, anything. It's so that you realize that it doesn't stop here. It just moves through me. And if we can keep that in check, we can guard against self-righteousness. And then lastly, and this is gonna be a tough one for some of us here. Unforgiveness or partial forgiveness is a sign of self-righteousness. This is a very tough passage. So please stick with me because I'm gonna to have to add some context here. So Paul, you don't even know what he's saying unless you say, wait, "Wait, who is he talking about?" And then you go back and you read the story of what had happened. He's writing a letter to the church in Corinth, and he's talking to these believers, and he's expressing his heart, and he's he's checking them on something, but he's doing so with tears and grief. So he writes this letter in chapter two, and it says, "This is why I wrote you, believers." in this city, as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when you forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that, everybody say, so that. So that that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. And he just gave one of the schemes, which is unforgiveness. Well, what, what happened here? So there was a guy in the church, this is in a previous account, and the guy committed incest and he was unrepentant, like wouldn't, wouldn't repent, wouldn't own up. And so they did the right thing. A man who committed a pretty bad sexual sin, it needs to be dealt with. You you don't just sweep that under the rug. Like there has to be confrontation. There has to be discipline. There has to be restoration and intervention. And the guy wouldn't repent. And so they kicked him out of the church and literally turned him over to Satan so that even Peter went through it. Satan desires to sift you and the sifting was to bring such pain that you would go through this torment but it would wake you up so you would repent and not find utter destruction. And so he was given the boot and the discipline but he came back and he repented. He said, I I realize my sin is... It's terrible. But what happened is that the church in Corinth, they, they said, well, we don't want you back, man. You're, you're disgusting. You don't fit here anymore. There's other type, types of sin that we're gonna embrace, but you no longer have a place in this community. And Paul, with tears and grief, now again, not justifying it, but he's like, listen, you're gonna discourage this guy to the point of like leaving the faith. You, you don't understand. All of you... When it comes to sin, all of you are just as guilty as a rapist, as a murderer, as Hitler himself, because when it comes to what it takes to make heaven your home, you must be perfect, and if you're just a little bit imperfect, you go to the same hell as every single human being regardless of their sin, because only Jesus saves us. The guy asked the other day, like, why is Jesus the only way? Because a perfect God needed a perfect sacrifice to cover our sin, to wash it away, to cleanse us. And nobody met that requirement except Jesus. And so only Jesus can apply the healing to our um, terminal sickness called sin. And so he says, to this, he says to this church, listen, you are rejecting this dude and in doing so, What you're doing is you're saying that your sin is not bad and now you're nullifying the work of the cross and the blood of Christ if you don't embrace this repentant man. Now, do you keep an eye on him? Absolutely. Do do you uh, just trust blindly? Absolutely not. There has to be some trust and proving ground as far as like integrating back. But he's saying, listen, the minute you want to say this person's sin is so great that even if they're repentant, they're not allowed back in the circle. At that point, you have become self-righteous and you yourself are in greater need than the repentant man because at least he's right and justified because he brought his heart back to Christ. And you, although you might be living clean, are guilty in the eyes of God because of your judgmental attitude. Has anybody... Does anybody understand what, what is going on here? Yeah. God, this is the grace, but it puts pressure on us. And then finally, I'm gonna close with this. There's three categories of unforgiveness. Number one, and I'm gonna just breeze through this really fast. Number one, areas that are hard for, for us to forgive are, are foreign sins. Maybe you grew up and like you see people like, I, I wasn't around that. I can't believe people would do that. It could be an alternative lifestyle. It could be uh, prejudice. It could be racism. It could be whatever. I mean, something that just doesn't doesn't register, doesn't calculate. And so it'd be like, man, I could never be around those type of people. Like those people are just so far gone. Like, "Ah, I know I'm supposed to have grace for everybody, but God, please never ask me to even try and create connection with those folks. Even if it means winner. There's, there's, judgmental attitudes that we have because we don't understand a certain type of sin. But if we were to put ourselves in their story and we were to understand how the enemy worked in their life, in their past, in their abuse, uh, not that we would condone the sin, but if we had the heart of Christ, we would want every single person, regardless of whether we understand that sin or not, to be set free, right? Another one is familiar sin. You know that sometimes the people that are hardest for you and I are people that are like us the most? You ever notice that? The people that get under your skin the most, if you just pause, you would be like, oh, snap. The reason I don't like it is because it's like I'm looking in a mirror and I don't like what stares back at me. You know, stubborn, opinionated people don't generally like to be around stubborn, opinionated people. Why? Because in this friend group, there's only going to be one opinionated person, and it's going to be me because I have the best opinions, right? And so we tend, to, we tend to have a hard time with people who, in a weird way, expose our own hearts by mirroring back what we do to other people. Familiar sin. That's a tough one to forgive. And then lastly is personal offense. Isn't it funny, like, we could forgive Hitler. We could forgive This dude in the Corinthian church, we could forgive anybody, anytime, foreign sin, familiar sin, as long as it's not personally against me. As long as they're hurting other people, come on, guys, have grace for them. Have grace for her. How dare you judge her? She needs love. Somebody take her in. Fine, I'll take her in. And then she hurts you. Oh, now it's personal. You know, nobody, you know, okay, I'll forgive you, but like, I am not talking to you ever again. Listen, this is self-righteousness. And so I want you to bow your head and, and close your eyes with me today and I'm read this passage as you just ponder your own heart. James 2.13 says this, there will be no mercy for those who have, sh- who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. I just want you to just Examine your own heart. Let God examine your heart. And I want you to think as you do, I'll kinda help you ponder this by asking you the question, like what, what category do you think you would fall into? In the prodigal son story. You know, it's been said the story should actually be called the, the parable of the two lost sons because both were lost. The older son obeyed all the rules, did everything dad told him, went above and beyond, took out the trash, never talked back, never smoked a cigarette, never looked at porn, obeyed all the rules. And you don't even really see that there's anything wrong with this guy until his rebellious little brother Ends up wasting dad's money, goes off the deep end, sleeps with prostitutes, becomes a drug addict, ends up in the pig pen, shames his parents, brings just absolute embarrassment to the family name, caused a lot of stress, sleepless nights. I mean, you imagine, you know, how many nights was mom crying? How many, how many days did dad walk around like a zombie wondering what was going on with his son and this righteous older brother, maybe that's you I bet there was probably some goodness in his heart defending his parents like maybe some of his anger was, I can't believe you would do this to mom and dad and and then the brother comes home and you get a glimpse of God's real heart when you see what transpires and I know it's, I know it's one of the most played sermons in in churches, but why does this just never get old? I think it's because we're either, we have a propensity toward the younger brother or the older brother. For me, I I made jokes about this. If I backslid, I would 1000% be the younger brother. I would be on the news, it would not be fun. My wife, it would probably look like skipping church. It's about as bad as it would be, but she might have a religious heart. We've talked about it. We've joked about it. But both are sin. And we tend to only see the sin of the younger brother. So when he comes back and he just can't accept that God or dad would forgive such a wasteful, selfish rebel, All of a sudden you see the whole time the rule follower was filled with a wickedness called self-righteousness. So you're in here today and God loves you, whether you're a rebel or you're self-righteous, but he wants the rebel to come home and he wants the self-righteous to repent as well. And I want you to be honest with God. I said this last week, but the thing self-righteousness never wants to do is hold a hand up and admit you're self-righteous because then it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a taint against self. But the only way we can get rid of it is to bring it into the light. So if you're in here today and you say, God, in something that you show me by your Holy Spirit today, there's some self-righteousness that's still alive in me. And I, and I want you to take it. And I'm ready to surrender. If that's you, I want you to hold your hand up today. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being honest. You can put your hands down. Every head bowed, and every eye closed. If you're in here today and maybe, maybe you're, you're the younger brother. You might be a woman in here, but like you're living in absolute rebellion against God. Maybe not absolute in in the way we might define rebellion, but you don't need him and you don't include him. Maybe you haven't even believed in him. You haven't been following him. And today you wanna to say, I, I want to be a recipient of salvation and redemption. And I know it only comes by faith in Jesus Christ because no human being will be in heaven without the blood and the work of Christ being applied to their life. If that's you today and you say today, I need to give my life to Jesus. I want you to hold your hand up. Come on. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. Praise God. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna stand to our feet this morning and I'm gonna pray. And as, as we sing this next song, we'll ask you to prepare your offering. And I'm gonna have you, uh, I'll close the service at the end. So please don't leave yet. We're not quite done. We're using this time at the end as a means to either come down and pray, and we're gonna have a response team down here during this song as well. If you you want prayer for anything, don't hesitate. Um, Join and agree with one of us so we can pray over your needs. Um, But be gracious in your giving as well as you prepare your tithes and offerings. Understand that this is God giving to you so that he can give through you, so that we can be a blessing and we can reach more people for Christ. So we're gonna prepare our offering and worship and then we're gonna sing and we're gonna worship God and do your business with God right now. So whatever he showed you, use this time to surrender it to him. So let's be fully engaged in this moment. Go ahead and lead us and then when we're done, I'll come back up and close us out.